Shalom. Welcome to the Christchurch Jerusalem Bible Study, where we wrestle with God's Word. For more information on the church, to listen to sermons, to contact us, or to make a gift, visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Welcome, brothers and sisters, to Christchurch Jerusalem. We are here in our evening Bible study, Wednesday night, studying the book of Leviticus. Uh, we are in chapter 8. We wrestled with a fair bit of it last week, and uh, although literally only got through nine verses per se in terms of word for word, although tonight it would be, I think, wise for us to have a, uh, a small digression, that is, we'll read a few verses from chapter 8, but we will focus on the main topic of sacrifices. Where'd they come from? What do they mean? What do they actually mean in the time of Moses? What do they mean now? What do they mean in the future of a temple? And this might help us carry through with uh, some of the um, um, chapters that are coming up. But uh, we acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is present, present with me, it's present with all you guys. This binds us together as a family, which is absolutely a treasure for everybody who's listening also online. And the, the way to acknowledge that presence is also to pray. And so, Brother Neville, would you pray us in? Yes, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your provision in so many ways. Lord, we thank you for the provision of this technology that we can meet over vast distances together. But above all, Lord, we thank you for the provision of your Holy Spirit to guide us into truth, to enlighten us, to bind us together in your name. So, Father, we pray that this will be a blessed time as we study your word. Amen. Amen. Okay. And as a tradition, we do a little recap <coughs> from last week. For those that are listening online, you can probably download this as well. Uh, Leviticus 8, verses 1 to 9, although it does cover a little bit more of our discussion than just the first nine verses. So chapters nine, 8 and 9 describe the ritual ceremony for ordinations and consecrations. In Exodus 29, Moses is commanded to consecrate Aaron and his sons to the service of the Lord. Now that the tabernacle has been erected, it is time to actually perform the ritual. As the brother of Moses, Aaron is also in the tribe of Levi and is thus actually a priest. And so for a brief moment, Moses is higher than Aaron as he consecrates him to the high priesthood. Moses gathers the entire assembly of Israel the entrance of the tent of meeting. Jewish commentaries note that this refers to the heads of the community as it would be a physical impossibility to host over one million people in such a small space. All doesn't mean all in biblical Hebrew. The actual consecration was an elaborate week-long event that purified the temple, the altar, the people, and the clothing and the vestments of the people. Through the ritual agents like water, anointing oil, and sacrificial blood. The end result of this week long ritual will be the presence of the Lord and the fire from heaven in Leviticus 9 24. Moses begins to explain to the elders that this is what the Lord commands, which could be a proof text for what he's actually doing. We should note that the entire ceremony was God's plan, 
not the invention of Moses. What then can we learn from what the Lord is revealing through this event? Our discussion about the various elements of the consecration service raised many questions that perhaps never had answers to begin with. Most consecrations begin with a washing. Interestingly, Aaron and his sons receive the washing from Moses. They do not wash themselves. They receive it. This washing was a one-time thing. From then on, they would only wash their feet and hands before the service. There is a slight allusion to Jesus' washing his disciples during the Passover. The text then focused on the clothing of Aaron and his sons. The vestments of those serving God were also consecrated. Humans have the same holiness as objects. Anything attached to the name of God is holy. We asked ourselves, what should a modern-day pastor or a shepherd wear as they serve the Lord, particularly in times of public worship? Now, while the answer is cultural, traditional, and periodical, that is, subject to the fashion of the day, the answer should at the very least be connected to holiness. One of the more interesting articles of clothing are the urim and the thummim in the breastplate of the high priest. These appear to be colored stones fitted into the breastplate that allowed communication with Almighty God. These are not magical objects, but communication devices, which, of course, begs the obvious question, why? God already talks to people, as do angelic messengers. So why the introduction of this new method of seeking divine wisdom? Numbers 12, 5 to 8, notes that God did not talk to everyone the same. Moses spoke to the Lord face to face, but this was not true of the rest of Israel. Whatever reason we give for the Urim and Thummim, the point is that there is communication between God and his people. God is not silent. He is not aloof. He is present and he is involved in the affairs of his creation. This also might indicate that the Lord speaks to people in different ways. And we should not be discouraged or disappointed when the method that God chooses to communicate to us is different from someone else. Anointing oil and sacrificial blood are used to make atonement for the altar as well as the priests. The oil is used to anoint the tabernacle, the altar, the high priest Aaron, but not initially his sons. That part of the process comes at the end. Hierarchy is not foreign to the Bible. Interestingly, Moses placed the blood on the ear, hands, and feet of the priests. We discuss this symbolically to mean to listen or hear from God, to serve and obey God, and to walk with God. The question arose, though, why do inanimate objects need to be atoned for in the first place? Perhaps atonement and forgiveness are two different things. Early references in Leviticus seem to state that atonement comes prior to forgiveness, but does not state that it is a prerequisite. Articles that are holy, set apart for the service of the Lord and attached to his name, are required atonement, but not forgiveness. Atonement coming through sacred oil and sacrificial blood. The last act of worship is the consuming of the sacrifice, including unleavened bread, in the presence of God at the entrance of the tent of meeting. While the Lord does not need to consume food for sustenance, 
he does delight in being present and sharing fellowship around a table. Part of the character of the Lord is to share our experiences. This is uniquely done in the person of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. In terms of Christmas, most apt. All right. So <clears throat> I'm going to read just a few verses from Leviticus 8, and then I'm going to start asking a few questions on the nature of um, sacrifices, what we think that they mean, what we think that they meant in the past, particularly in context of the time uh, of uh, the exodus from Egypt. I'm going to ask Moti to share some of his opinions on um, the future temple okay, and what some of the sacrifices may or may not mean. And then, um, and then see how any of that might play out in terms of Jesus as a sacrifice. And hopefully, this will give us a bit of a background and discussion uh, as we move further into, into Leviticus. All right. So I'm actually looking at uh, Exodus 8. I'm going to read a few verses. I'll name them out as I go. Uh, beginning, though, at verse 10 to 15. So this is when Moses took the anointing oil and he anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it, and he consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, and he anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And then he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head, and he anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons, and he clothed them with, with coats and tied sashes around their waists, and he bound caps on them, as the Lord commanded Moses. And then he brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons, they laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering, and he killed it. And Moses took the blood with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar around it, and purified the altar. And he poured out the blood at the base of the altar, and he consecrated it to make atonement for it. And then picking it up at verse 22. And then he presented the other ram. There were three uh, animal sacrifices for this ceremony. So then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination. The, the word actually is miluim, which is not 100% sure what, how you translate that uh, word into modern English. So he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and uh, he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and he put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Interesting little way of uh, anointing Aaron there. And then in verse 30, we now take oil. And then Moses took some of the anointing oil and the blood that was on the altar, and he sprinkled it on Aaron and on his garments and also on his sons and, and his son's garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his son's garments with him. And Moses said to Aaron, his sons, boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting and there eat it and the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. And what remains of the flesh and the bread shall burn up with fire. And you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination 
are completed. For it will take seven days to ordain you, thus says the Lord. All right, so uh, uh, an interestingly uh, long ordination ceremony that occurs just the once and results eventually in the presence of the Lord and the fire from heaven, which we will see in the next chapter. But obviously we've been discussing of, uh, the, the nature of sacrifices, the different types of uh, sacrifices with different names and uh, all, all there for different reasons. Majority of them are for unintentional sin, although not all of them. Some of them are for the sins of, um, what do we have, lying and extortion and things like that. Those were deliberate, deliberate sins. So on the nature of sacrifices, brothers and sisters, just uh, from, from your background knowledge, as it is that you've got right now, what do you think the Israelites thought that they were doing as Moses is now instituting sacrifices? Then what do you think that they thought that they were engaging in now? Any idea? To me, Aaron, I always, when I think about it, I've always thought that the, the Israelites must have thought this was a way that they could, in a sense, have a reconciliation with God, um, be able to come before a holy God, because um, they've been in Egypt, they've been away, and so now it was a way God was cleansing them and making them the special people. But this process was that cleaning process. I have a, I have a question, just out of the blue, I wrote down a list of questions on my on my um, uh, on my notes coming into the study tonight. While in Egypt, what do you think the Israelites saw? Obviously, they didn't have a temple, so they couldn't offer sacrifices. But what sort of worship did they see the Egyptians perform? Well, the Egyptian worship. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Which was sacrifice and um, idolatry. They. They idolized the pharaohs. They, the, the, e- Egypt had an absolute cult of death. It, 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 they built these massive monuments to preserve their leaders from death. They, built these, they, they had these frescoes of what the afterlife would look like. Um, and they had an incredible process of what happened to someone who died and to someone who actually went into heaven. How they knew all this, we've got no idea. But they, um, they, they, had an incredible fixation with preserving and and worshiping uh, death. Uh, Janet, did you have a hand up? Yeah, sorry, I don't obviously have an answer to that. But didn't Moses at one time say, "Please let us go out so that we can worship"? And did he say sacrifice as well, or not? I could be mistaken. You know, please let us go so we can go out and worship. That's a good question. Someone, if anyone can, can look up what Moses says to Pharaoh. He did say, one of the times he went to Pharaoh, he said, um, let the people go and worship. Another time he said, let them go and sacrifice. Um, when, Moses, when Pharaoh said that they can go without the animals, he said, no, they need the animals for the sacrifice. That's, that's interesting. So that means that sacrifice is connected to worship in late antiquity. Okay, so that's that's a good thing to know, right? That's a good thing to know that when the Israelites are are, are actually free now, we create a system of of worshiping the Lord, which involves 
the sacrifice of an animal. Of course, within the Leviticus and, and uh, other texts as well, but in Leviticus, the book that we're studying, we also notice that some of our sacrifices can be grain, meaning you don't have to be rich to worship the Lord. You, you have the opportunity as a poor person to actually bring uh, some sort of worship before the Lord. So, yeah, sacrifice seems to be implied uh, with worship. Roddy, what have you got? You got a hand raised? So going back to what you said about the Egyptians focusing on death, but at the same time preserving eternal life, they do that through these offering and sacrifices, then maybe the Israelites have in their mind that this is a way for eternal life, or at least preserving, taking the steps to, uh, to preserve it from, what they, from the life that they were living before and what they saw. Let's all remember as we're talking, we're kind of speaking into silence. We're we're discussing the possibilities of what may or may not have been there. Um, Obviously, we have the text in front of us, but the text isn't alone. The text has a context. There's um, been a captivity. There's been a a large period of time in Egypt. Um, They have not had a temple and had the opportunity to worship God. They don't even know who God is is yet he has not revealed himself to them at mount sinai so it's not like they uh uh uh, can just go out and start sacrificing and, and and with their own priests as they don't have any yet the first priests are indeed moses and aaron themselves um okay so moti mordecai what have you got shalom yes um sacrificing something has a long history in jewish tradition I don't think uh, Jews learned anything from the Egyptians and start sacrificing because the Bible records that, you know, Cain and Abel, sons of Adam and Eve, brought sacrifices to God. Noah sacrificed animals and birds to God upon leaving the ark after the great flood. At the binding of Isaac, Abraham brought a ram as a burnt offering in the place of his son, blah, blah, blah. You know, it has a long history. So there you go. Sacrifices, as Mordecai is saying, are pre-Torah. Yeah. That pre-Torah. would be a fair, fair um, uh, sentence. Yes, correct. Yes. Yep. And isn't that interesting? Sacrifices are pre-Torah. Okay. Um, Neville? Yeah. One thing that the, the people of Israel living so long uh, in Egypt, you know, in, in a pagan environment, they may, lo- may well have absorbed the understanding that if you care for God, he's going to care for you. So if you provide things, uh, sacrifices to, in worship to your God, then he will take care of you and your affairs. So uh, kind of the divine human deal. Right, okay. That could be a definitely in a, uh, a pagan way, and it may have spilled over into um, some Israelite uh, worship. Um, so it's interesting that you have this history of non-Jews worshipping the Lord through sacrifices. Now that we're actually a nation and we're in Egypt, we don't have the opportunity to offer sacrifices. Isn't that interesting? And the world around us is a rather sort of a, 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 a very powerful empire that has a, an incredible asphyxiation with death. Um, which also had a sacrificial system and may have had this um, sense of bargaining as part of their worship. 
I do this for God and God does, or gods in their case, and God does stuff for me. All right, now there's a plethora of hands, which is great. So I'm going to go down the list and I'm going to start with um, Vidar and David. You're up. Yes, Aaron, it's me. I, I, this is slightly off. I, I was wondering, because we're talking about how the Israelites felt, how they felt in Egypt, etc., regarding the Lord God, regarding sacrifice. Now, surely, I, I, I'm curious as to how they would have reacted about the ten plagues, for example, to see the power of God. I'm curious to see how they would have reacted when the Red Sea was parted or the cloud you know, with a block, the Egyptian army, etc. Surely they would be anticipating something really great by meeting the living God. What's the first sacrifice that Israel is allowed to do in Egypt? Correct. Exactly. The blood of the lamb, yeah. Blood of the lamb. Isn't that interesting that, that here you have a nation that's beginning to learn who God is and they've had a history of different sacrifices of people who can relate to God, who can talk to God, who, who sacrifice for God, then there's a large period of where they can't. Yes. And, and also, Aaron, what, what's happening here is, is they've been told that the blood of the lamb is a token or a sign. They've to been told that. And, and also, not just a token and a sign, but also actually a real physical thing. It actually physically wards off the, 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 the malachamabe, the angel of death it's interesting to me when i when i was looking at the text um yesterday i was reading through the uh parts of joseph joseph doesn't actually make any sacrifices himself the the avot do the the patriarchs do abraham does isaac does jacob does they all they all do but once you get to joseph once he's actually taken down into egypt he, he can't and, and obviously he does not uh also interesting god actually never talks to joseph He's one of those characters of the Bible where he's incredibly faithful and yet doesn't have any direct communication with heaven as, as the text records it. Okay, um, who was up? Uh, Tom Fields, you're up. Yeah, I, uh, I got a different observation on, uh, on Egypt. You mentioned the cult of death, but it's, isn't it really more a cult of the afterlife, anticipating the life beyond this life? Yep, that's a good uh, point as well. Yep, they've got a real fixation with life beyond death. Yeah, how's that? The afterlife. That's good. What's, what's going to happen after you're off this planet and what, what, what the next life is going to look like? Yep. And so they spent a lot of time talking about it, and yet our, our scriptures do not. Interesting. Okay, Janet and then Andrew from South Africa. Right. Oh, a couple of things. Just Just coming off of Tom here. Is there something that God's put in us that there's an eternal nature to what we are, or there's, a, there's something beyond where we are right now? So we really need to pay attention to that. But um, what I was going back to was, um, it, it seems to me, um, with a tabernacle being established and it being made a holy place, you know, as it, it's a physical place not just the cloud and the fire going across the desert with them, that it's kind of a precursor almost to the fact that ultimately God's going to put his name on Jerusalem. And that will be the, the place where he puts his name. And, and so he, he wants them to have a physical place. And he was always very adamant about saying at a certain point, well, I, I only want you to do this here. I don't want you to set up other places. 
um, which they started to do with the asterisk and so on. But I was also just thinking generally about how he's beginning to establish that sacrifice is not necessarily appeasement. It's not appeasement of God, because he says at another place, you know, really, I don't need your sacrifices. I need, you know, I need your behavior. But it's, it's for us. And, and he's saying, really, you don't appease me with sacrifices. I want relationship with you. So why do you think the prophets had to say words like that? Does that imply that some, some parts of the community had now assumed that sacrifices were an appeasement to the divine being? Well, it, it becomes a sort of, well, you know, this is, this, is what I, this is what I need to do to be in relationship with God. And yes, you're, you're doing things to acknowledge the behavior that you've done that is, you know, whether it's intentional or not intentional. You need to do something outward at this time, you know, of, of the journey of the people of God. So you're, you're doing something that reflects your inward, so on. But if it's just done as well, I guess I need to go sacrifice because, you know, it makes me a good person or, you know, it, it's an outward thing. And so it became, I guess it became... Uh, it became much more than God wanted it to be. You know, I, I don't need to wallow in all this blood. I want, I want your hearts. Correct. That is, the, that is indeed the call of the prophets. Um, we all, of course, remember that sacrifice, korban, comes from the root korov, to draw close. So there is this idea that we have an eternal nature, that how do you connect somehow to heaven? How do you get heaven to draw close? There is this, this one way of worship which involves um, the sacrifice, the, the korban, um, which, is, which is literally a drawing close and not an appeasement. It may have become something else, but the root of the, of the word itself is to draw close. So, Andrew, you've got a couple of interesting um, things to say. Andrew and I have had the pleasure of a few discussions uh, during the week. Um, and, uh, uh, so Andrew, love to hear what you've got to say on the the nature of sacrifice. Uh, to be clear, we haven't had much discussion. I sent you a message. and Yeah, fair enough. With some, with some ideas in it. Uh, but the, the question now was the context of these sacrifices. And we spoke talking about Egypt as being this, uh, the context, but perhaps closer context is actually the golden calf, Moses being up on Sinai, and the golden calf, which we all tend to see as a sort of pagan worship, a, 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 worship of a god they've made uh, but perhaps as rabbi jonathan Sachs suggests there may be a, a counter narrative here in terms of the, the golden calf and that the calf may have been built as an oracle to try and communicate with god it was abhorrent an abhorrent thing to do it was the wrong thing to do but they were desperate they were they'd seen these mighty acts of god uh, they're now huddled in the desert Moses has gone up into the mountain for, for weeks. Where is he? Where is God? Has God abandoned us? So we build this oracle to try and communicate with God again. And that might be part of the context is what I was going to suggest at this stage. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah. Um, so in relation to what we've already been discussed, do you think Israel may have um, been influenced by what they had seen in Egypt? 
as well? Absolutely, um, no doubt. Eh? It yeah. would have been not just Egypt, the surrounding nations that were sac right sacrificing animals, sacrificing humans, children. Humans, yeah, yeah. Nigeria, you've got a few comments. Yes, shalom, everyone, and. Um, um, going back to the, the sacrifices, um, the history, um, we can see that um, a lot of people believe that the, the, the covering of um, Adam and Eve came out from a sacrifice that God did himself when he um, killed an animal to make clothing for them. Um, but in that place, we don't see, I mean, it was not said that God killed any animal. It said God made um, skin of animal for them, of course. Um, it wasn't mentioned specifically if God killed an animal or he's not created the skin on his own. But um, a lot of people believe that um, that was the first uh, mention of sacrifice in, in a way. So sacrifice have always been there. We see Abraham sacrificing to God and going down through the patriarchs. Um, so I want to believe that at the time they were living in Egypt, there was a huge pressure on them to worship God in the way they have been seen. Um, which they know, the one they know, the one they've heard from their, their, their patriarchs, and also from the way that the people worship. Because um, now and then we continue to hear God says, do not worship Adonai the way you see the nations, the way the nations worship their God. You should not do that. And um, also, um, like um, was just mentioned now, you know, the golden calf issue was um, also a way for the people to have an oracle for them to, to, to communicate with God. God instituted the sacrifice as a sign for us to learn the, the processes of communicating with him. Um, we, when a life goes and we pour out blood, um, it, it has a very big um, weight before God and before man because a life is going. And God said that just like the sacrifice of the animal cannot go unpunished, so also we, when we shed, when we shed blood, um, we must pour the blood on the altar so that um, it's used to appease for our sins. Um, not so much to appease God, but to show our kind of um, emotions towards what we're doing. Um, of course, we see that in the time of the prophet, the, the people's emotion were taken away from it and it became a formula. Oh, let's see, okay, you've done this, just go and do this and, you know, um, and so it was just, um, you have something to offer to God or something to bribe God and um, is taking care of the sin that you're already thinking of doing. I mean, not even the one that has been committed because we see in the time of Job, Job was offering for sacrifices for his children, even though they, he doesn't know if they've committed or not. And so we could see that could have developed to a point where people would say, okay, I'm going to commit the sin in the, in the nearest future. So let me just um, do the sacrifice now and you know feel good about it. Thank you very much, um, Shimshan. I, I just had noticed in the chat that uh, Sharon put in atonement, not appease. Actually, I wrote, Sharon, I wrote exactly the same thing as, as Shimshan was talking, describing things, that, that there is this um, strong element within the pagan world, as we see, to, for the appeasement of an angry God. Yet the Hebrew Bible, when it talks about sacrifices, it talks about it not as appeasement, it talks about it as atonement. Like interesting that that there's a, th those two words are very different, um, and uh, one is a covering and one is appeasing, making God 
happy or satisfied. And one is to provide a covering for something. Now, that's a, those are two very different themes that, that show up there. And then I want to move into the nature of sacrifices as they change. We're reading them now in terms of the tabernacle and the wandering in the wilderness and the creating of the priesthood. And uh, there are a bit of influences, perhaps, with the Gentile patriarchs and then the, uh, the Jewish patriarchs that had, had offered sacrifices. But then what happens when we don't have a temple? What do we do? We go from not having a temple to having a temple to not having a temple. But before we get into that, there's a couple of hands raised. And then I want to hear about uh, the, especially the Chabadnikim, our, our wonderful brothers who, who look forward to a third temple, okay? Brother David or Vida from England. Yes, Aaron, I was just going to say, we have in the scripture, even in the New Testament, where it says clearly that God says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor is more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And to me, yes, these sacrifices were there as part of this original covenant God gave with his people. However, like the temple, like these sacrifices, they are all, in a sense, to me, pointers, shadows of Christ coming. So we know that when Christ died on that cross, that ultimate sacrifice, not just took away our sins, but he was a sacrifice, his sacrifice restored us. He, all, the, all the things his sacrifices do, Christ gave to us. So here we see the, the Old Testament, in, and I'm not separating them, but we see the Old Covenant picturing and, and leading us up to this wonderful new covenant we're going to get through Christ. And now we in Christ are living sacrifices. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to comment on too. That's why I've, I've got my hand raised too, because yeah, that all of that New Testament, you know, that's all of that Jewish history, it speaks to the fact that Christ is the ultimate, the, the fulfillment or whatever word you want to use, that those are a shadow of the things to come, but then everything is completed in Christ. So I think it speaks too to that verse that, you know, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So the sacrifice concept shows and teaches that all through the, the Jewish history to the point where Jesus gives his ultimate sacrifice, right? Okay, I want to comment on, on both those comments. So the, I understand 100% the obvious connection between sacrifices and Jesus. However, I would like to talk about how Jewish people understand sacrifices when they don't have a temple. Because what we do is, as Christians, 2,000 years after Jesus, is we pick up the Torah, we pick up the New Testament, we hold them like this, and we connect them like this and go, look, see? They're connected, but there's this massive gap in the middle. And we need to remind ourselves of context because... Why is there a gap, Aaron? Well, there's 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. So nothing changed in terms of the policies. Ah, what you just said is completely untrue. <laughs> nothing changed. Oh, my gosh, Aaron. Wash your mouth out with soap. That is, <laughs> that is so not true. Yeah, there was a lot of change. And, and we will get to it, but I'm going to go to Tom, and then I'm going to go into diaspora, okay? Okay, so, Tom, you're up. What I find interesting about all this is going back to something you said a long time ago, Aaron, that Leviticus is your favorite book because it truly shows the heart of God. 
if you look at, uh, as you say, the root is to draw near, what I see is that the sacrifice to God in the Bible is different than the sacrifices that all the pagans were making. And at the same time, you see that the God of Israel is, as you say, looking for a relationship where, and, and not looking for us to, uh, to appease him or to make him happy. And I, I, what I find interesting, as I say, is, is on a broader scale, comparing and contrasting the image of that God and the heart of that God to all the other gods up to and including Allah. If you look at the Quran and study the Quran and you study, look for the heart of God in the Quran, you will find a completely different creature than the God of Israel. You're looking for someone who wants us to do his bidding in a way that he says. They spent 700 years trying to define what God was. And when they failed, they spent 700 trying to define what he wasn't. All of this is because the God of the Quran, as opposed to the God of Israel, is a capricious character. So for me, everything that you're discussing in our Bible study is interesting. But the bigger picture, in my mind, has greater weight than even the discussions you're having right now. And anyway, sorry for going off on the metaphysical. Oh, that's great, buddy. That's we are all all a family here. And and I liked I wrote down the word relationship all over my page. The the entire Bible is one giant relationship that God wants to have. And of course, we get out of Israel, uh, out of Egypt, where in, we've got uh, the presence of the Lord in our tabernacle. We consecrate it. We make absolutely everything holy curtains tents clothing underwear you name it okay it's all set aside for the lord we have the presence of the lord and then we have this this sacrificial system yes we have a sacred history which uh, mordecai mentioned that we have the uh, the heroes of the bible both jews and gentiles that offer sacrifices we have a context an egyptian context of um, sacrifices now we have divine words from heaven that have these sacrifices. We have a special building. We create the temple when we're in the land of Israel. And then, of course, as you know what happens, we don't get to stay there. We are unfortunately uh, an idolatrous people, and the Babylonians come, they destroy the temple, and they take us away. And now all of a sudden we are in Galut, we are in diaspora, and we cannot make sacrifices, and we have no temple. And then after two, so so, what do we do? What 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 what's our option? Could we just throw our hands up in absolute despair and say, "That's it, we're done." The Lord has abandoned His people. We may now all as well become Australians because and move to a large island in the middle of nowhere. That's not what happens. But um, anyway, Mordecai, you've got a hand raised all of a sudden. Yep. Share them up before me, I think. Oh, whoops. Okay. So I'm going to put your hand back up. <laughs> and uh, Sharon, you're up. And then Mordecai. Sharon, I'm being a gentleman right now. Thanks, Marty. You're wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> it's recorded. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, this is the thought I was just thinking that you guys just a, a reference to it is in Hebrews 10, you know, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, you know, temple or no temple, okay, make perfect those who draw near to worship. So to Tom's point, you know, a little further down in Hebrews 10, first he said sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, ultimately, right? Nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law, for sure. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So, and you know, Hebrews 10 is just a phenomenal kind of you know, recapping of everything. So I'm not exactly sure what you meant originally there, Aaron, in terms of how things have changed, but I guess it was- okay, I will describe it again. At the time of Jesus, the majority of Jews are not in Israel. The majority of Jews have not returned to the land of Israel. Right, but my point is that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. I'm not saying that he's not. Okay. What I'm, what I'm trying to say is, what do we understand sacrifices to be? Because in okay is um what do we think that we're we're doing and what do we think we're going to be doing in perhaps a third temple? But Mordecai, you're up first. Yeah, I would like to answer your question about the sacrifices today. Since we don't have a temple and an altar, it is forbidden to perform sacrifices anymore. So instead of that, we pray three times a day, study Torah, as Andrew had written in the chat, and. We give charity, Sedeka, and we pray for the third temple. After every single prayer, you can see that I wrote in Hebrew on the chat that we say this special prayer at the end of every single you know prayer we do. In English, it's may it be your will, Lord our God and God of our fathers, that the temple be speedily rebuilt in our days and grant us our portion in your Torah to fulfill the commandments, you know. And we wait for the third temple. When you say you wait for the third temple, what is the Chabad understanding of um, the third temple? Where does it come from? Is it, is it, it is in Ezekiel and Yeshia. You okay. see it, that there will be a third temple. And there are four things, actually, of the third temple we need to know. It will be big, bigger than the previous temples. Then it will be a square. And irons will be everywhere. And we will go there often. You know, we usually go like three times a year, but in that temple, we will go more often than we usually did in the past. So okay. you can read it in Ezekiel, chapters 40 to 48. It's all about the two temples. Who builds it, Mordecai, according to tradition? Well, it is not written in the Torah. So according to tradition, we think that the Messiah and the third temple will come simultaneously and the third temple will come in fire. So one day we'll wake up and we'll see the third temple. I don't know how will this happen. <laughs> That's the tradition. So yeah. no, I, I think it's a, I think it's an incredible tradition. It's gonna be chick chuck, you know. Yeah. So uh, Andrew, you've got an interesting question in chat. Your question in, in chat is um, if God is finite, infinite and eternal. How can there be space for a finite mankind? It's a very esoteric question, and it's an incredible one to think of and ponder. Um, I was contemplating this in the last couple of uh, uh, days when I was doing some sermon notes for Christmas, is that um, um, the, 
you know, the, 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 the reading for Christmas is, you know, for God so loved the world, uh, I'm sorry, John 1, where uh, in the beginning was the Word and, and the Word was with God and the Word was God and nothing was made without the, without the Word. You get this sort of idea of creation and, and, uh, and, and, and the Messiah, pre-existent Messiah fashioning the foundations of the world. And, um, and, and I was thinking that the actual act of creation is in itself an act of love. God does not need to make the heavens and the earth. He does so out of absolute pure love. And, 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 and I think that, you know, you've got this infinite, powerful, incredible divine being who we cannot possibly fathom or understand decide to create something called time, a timeless being creates something. And, and that, I, my, when I sit on my couch and think about it, I, I, I get headaches. So perhaps I can't actually ponder it other than to say that I'm awestruck by Christmas when I think of the little baby and go, wow, you know, you know, here we have this incredible uh, God who enters into humanity and decides to share my experiences with me, um, which is incredible. But at the same time, when he started the whole thing, that it in itself is also an act of love. For God so loved the world. There's something about the way he set up the world. And, and I really hope that, that that message really resonates with people at Christmas, that, uh, that they don't just contemplate baby Jesus and it's all wonderful. I mean, it is wonderful. It's absolutely fantastic. But this is a huge picture behind it as well. And, and I actually see, as Vito is saying, these, the sacrifices are also, there's a bigger picture behind them. There's a, there's a massive amount of, uh, I mean, obviously, yes, you have the cultural context. Never, never remove the Bible from its context. There is influences from the world around. There's also something bigger behind it as well. I mean, obviously, God could easily have come down to Moses and said, gee, all this animal stuff that everybody's doing around the world, what a load of rubbish. You know, um, here we go. Lights to the nations. Let's create a nation with absolutely no sacrifices whatsoever. But he doesn't. Now, what I want to move into is we have a sacrificial system. We're creating um, uh, a way of worship. There's some positives and negatives to it. People do believe in the Lord and they love the Lord and they bring their offerings. There is corruption. That's terrible. We see that with the sons of Eli and way way worse. But we also know that, that sacrifices don't save Jerusalem. Jerusalem had the temple, they had sacrifices, and that does not stop the Babylonians. Now here we are in diaspora. The temple has been destroyed. We have no opportunity to make sacrifices, but we've got a heck of a lot of time to read the Bible now. And so we've got to start re-examining what we think worship is, what we think that sacrifices are, what we think that a relationship to the Lord Almighty is, and then when we have the opportunity to return to Jerusalem, why don't the majority come back? Were they pagans? Absolutely not. They write the Babylonian Talmud. They had incredible discussions on the Bible. So they do not, but they, they are not pagans. They are not, uh, uh, they don't believe in, in, in uh, they, haven't be, they don't believe in, they don't, haven't become atheists. They believe in God very much. But obviously they are not offering sacrifices. They cannot. And they don't for thousands of years. And so something has changed, Sharon. Something has changed. 
Because if if you say that it has stayed exactly the same, what are they all doing there? No, no, the policy is is the same. I mean, in the sense that without the remission of, of without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. But no, again, again, we should have already looked at that in the text. If you're poor and you can't afford blood, how do you get rid of your sin? And what has God already said? You can offer grain. This is an exception to the rule. It's okay. It's an exception that proved the rule because most people couldn't afford an animal. We have, we're in chapter 8. You should have heard me say this already. Shimshan, you've got a hand. Can, I, can I just add uh, oh, yeah. okay, Mordecai, something Mordecai. very quickly? Uh, I'm reading from the Mishnah. It says that the obligation to rebuild the temple may apply only when the majority of the Jewish nation lives in Israel, which is currently not the case, as you know. And in addition to that, it may apply only when there's a Jewish king or a prophet. So it's not from the Bible, it's not from the Torah, it's just the thoughts of some rabbis. And it sounds like we are looking and creating reasons for not to build a temple. You know, that's what I feel when I read all this commentary. Nobody wants okay. to put their Fair hands enough. under that rock. Yeah. <laughs> you know what happened in the northern side of Israel, Aaron? They tried to form a Sanhedrin and everybody freaked out, you know. Actually, that's true. Does everybody know this? It's true. They did try and form a Sanhedrin. I didn't know what was going on. I just saw the signs up around Jerusalem. Sanhedrin has started. And yeah, the rabbis in Jerusalem absolutely freaked out. They were livid. <laughs> All right, Shimshan, what you got? All right. Um, uh, I just want to refer to where Sharon was talking about in the book of Hebrews that um, without um, that Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. That is not um, it's not a contest, and we all know that. Um, but Christ's coming uh, never stopped the the sacrifices. In fact, at the time of Paul, if you read in the book of Acts, Acts twenty one, actually in twenty six, Paul was had to go to the temple to perform the sacrifice of the Nazir to make the Jews know that he has not stopped the traditions of um, the Jewish people at that point in time, because there was, a, there was a, um, a false statement going about that Paul is teaching people contrary to the um, traditions of um, the fathers. So they were doing um, those sacrifices, even though they know Paul being the author of, um, I believe Paul is the author of Hebrews, and. Um, you know, he stated that so, but they still offer the sacrifices. And if we go down to the book of Daniel, which Jesus was quoting from, saying, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, um, it, in Daniel, it was saying that the Antichrist is going to stop the sacrifices. True. Yeah, it says that the Antichrist is going to stop the sacrifice. And when the Antichrist is going to stop the sacrifice, that means the temple must be in place so that he can stand in the place he ought not to, to be able to do that. And so when you look at that, that means the third temple, which is the Ezekiel temple, um, is going to rise. And um, even though the specification for Ezekiel temple was given before the construction of the, of the temple of Herod, what we call the temple of Herod, but the, 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 the returnees did not build according to that standard. And um, why, um, I, I don't know, but um, I believe it was being kept for the for the last, you know, which is going to be this glorious temple. Um, um, and um, finally, uh, when we look at it in the book of Revelation, um, it still spoke about 
that's in the city um, for the new Jerusalem that is going to come, that is the only place where we are not going to see a temple because the Lamb and the Lord will be its temple. So uh, I think the temple is going to exist. I think there's going to be a building. I mean, uh, last time I was in Jerusalem, I spent some time with the Temple Institute. They've done very great work and, you know, very fantastic things and all those um, nice artifacts they have made. And they believe that the temple is going to come up very soon. Um, they've been raising funds. And um, I, I also want to believe with them that the temple is going to come up in a sort of arrangement. We don't know uh, how soon that will be. But at the end of the day, um, the sacrifice that will be offered there does not nullify what Christ has done. It's just coming to continue um, the, 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 the priesthood of the Aaronic priesthood that will come to an end very soon. And, um, and that's what I believe that is going to come up. Yeah. Thanks, Shimshon. Uh, as a Kohen, I don't know what to say, Shimshon. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to go get his uh, ritual slaughter knife now. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't worry. <laughs> Thank you for that, um, Muddy. <laughs> okay, Neville, you've got a hand raised. Yeah, yes. I wanted to give a bit of a sidelight on the situation when the, the people of Israel went into exile into Babylon. Okay. Um, and we know that they. They substituted the prayers in some sense as, as for the sacrifices. But this idea, they didn't pluck it out of the air. There's actually a verse which, I mean, they, they would need a verse anyway to do anything like that. And I'm going to read this verse to you, which is Psalm 141, verse 2. And it says this, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And the really interesting thing about this is this is a psalm of David way before any thought that there might have been an exile. Yep. And so the, the, the rabbis would have included this verse and others just to think, well, maybe we, you know, it's a, it's a prophetic provision that in some sense, prayer can be a substitute for incense and sacrifice. Yes, I think what... Um Neville is explaining is what you find in diaspora. Once you're in, in the in the galut, in, in diaspora, you sit down with the Tanakh, because that's all you have, and you look for reasons for why you're there. And they know that obviously sacrifices did not save them because they're in the diaspora. That's an obvious truth. That, so obviously, sac if sacrifices are 100%, you know, salvific, I mean, you know, then why have they not been, why are we still here? So we look through, we read these things, and we begin to re-examine our theology. We suddenly realize, okay, sacrifices aren't what I thought they were, so now what are they? And you begin in the diaspora to begin to, to realize that um, they have a different meaning to what we thought they were when we were perhaps wandering around the wilderness. So when we have the opportunity to return to, to Israel, we don't and still remain good Jews and still uh, uh, study the Bible. And let's also remember that when that Paul visits diaspora Jews, what is the one thing that none of his texts talk about? Sacrifice. He never says to somebody in Athens, what are you doing here? You obviously can't make sacrifice for your sin. You're dead. He, what he does is he says, 
open your Bibles. Let me prove to you who the Messiah is. I bet you I can do it. And not only that, I want you to repent for the forgiveness of sins, get baptized. You'll get the Holy Spirit. And it's going to be absolutely fantastic. You watch me heal some people who need healing and uh, this and these kinds of things that people believe. And they don't automatically then um, uh, uh, have a negative view of the temple. As Shimshon was saying, Paul, as soon as he gets into Jerusalem, is very happy to deliver the, to, re, to re return to the temple. Jesus is in the temple and he calls it his father's house multiple times, which means that in the second temple period, the temple, which is important, the sacrificial system, which is a part of your worship and also important, has taken on some other interesting meaning. And, uh, and remember, when Jesus is at the Passover and he talks in the Gospels, what is the one element of the Passover meal he does not mention? The lamb. He picks up bread and he picks up wine and he gives meaning to those. He never takes a piece of the lamb shank and goes, hey, I'm the, I'm the actual Passover sacrifice. Doesn't say that at all. What he does is something incredible which had not been seen before. He says, this is my blood of the new covenant. Now, if you read Jeremiah 31, you will see the words, the new covenant that the Lord will make with the house of Israel. But you will not find blood there. But you will not find blood there. Somehow in the late second temple period, Jesus linked blood and the new covenant and he put them together as a brand new teaching, which you had not got from Jeremiah before. And so that's a very interesting thing. So we're when we, when we talk about sacrifices, we need to keep everything in context and time period because uh, diaspora Jews and people who have a temple think differently. And, and, I, oh, and I really like it when, when Mordecai was talking about, you know, um, we make excuses so we don't have to build a temple. But we do believe there will be a temple. It will sort of spontaneously, you know, erupt out of, out of heaven. It would be absolutely fantastic. And then we'll offer sacrifices. But we're not 100% sure why, but we're going to do it. And and because um, right now we can pray and we can do things, which is a very interesting, complicated world we live in. But let's also remember, these are the words of the Lord. What is the Lord trying to teach us when he has his people out of out of Egypt? And he, and he says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have a form of worship. You can draw close to me. I want to be with you. I want to be able to eat with you, even though I actually don't need to eat anything. Yeah, I'm, I'm God. Like, well, I'm a divine being. Like, I need, I need sustenance. But, boy, I delight to, to have table fellowship with you. You know, and, I, and I'm going to have these priests. They're going to dress in a very funny way. And I'm going to have a communication device, even though I could talk to you if I want. I could send my angels to talk to you if I want. But I really delight to have an, an other way to communicate as well. I don't know why, but there is just the, the, the knowledge God delights to talk to his, with his people, which is a fantastic uh, truth. Anyway, I'm going to uh, get off my soapbox and uh, uh, David or Vida, whoever is up, and then I'm going to go Roddy and Janet. Erin, uh, I've got a question, which is something in my mind, you're talking about the diaspora and all of that. And in all of it, if you're looking at the Jewish people with regard to the sacrifice of the temple ritual, to me, in my simple understanding the temple that is there for three purposes is to 
cleansing to, because God is holy and we are filthy. Whether it's for sin or whether it's for death or whatever the reason, we need to be cleansed to come before a holy, holy God. So God is making sure that people understand his absolute holiness and separation from what we are. The second thing is to worship God. And the third is that God can dwell with his people. So that's the purpose of, to me, the temple. And whether they are have the temple there, those sacrifices and, and rituals are being done for those reasons. And even if they're in diaspora, they still are doing it, whether they can't do sacrifice in the way that they originally, they come into that place of repentance where they're realizing that God is that holy God. And so this whole process is, as you, as we said, is, is leading up to Jesus' understanding, but also that this is a God that is beyond what we can comprehend, and he is so separate, and he is so perfect, and making known that we are his creation. Absolutely. And Christmas is plan A. Yes. It is not plan B. That, yes. Just as you're describing, all of human history is plan A. For the yep. Lord, He knows what He is doing. He has He hasn't decided to go. Oh, something went wrong there. I better I better instigate Plan B or C or D, and I'm up to Z because of you know I'm running out of letters in the alphabet. But uh, no, this this what we see is Plan A. Amen. And it and it, and it leads up to uh, to to Christmas. Okay, Roddy. Yeah. Okay. So I asked the question, when is the only time that blood is mandatory, but nobody responds? Because uh, everything else everything else we're talking about is, is not wrong. But the only time that we see blood is mandatory is in the sealing, the covering of a covenant. And so that fits with the Adam and Eve, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David, with Pinchas. And more importantly, for Sharon's point, the forgiveness of sin is part, it's one part of the Brit Hadashah, the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. That's the only time it's mandatory. It has to be. God seals his covenants with a blood covering, including the marriage covenant. The sacrifices and offerings can be fixed in, in for many different reasons, all the ones we're talking about, but blood is mandatory to seal a covenant. That would be my argument. Nicely said, Roddy. Thanks very much, man. Uh, Janet? Maybe Motti can help with this. Um, two things. Um, at Yom HaKippur, mm -hmm. there, there are some people who do the chickens with blood and sprinkle it. They do. Uh, I don't know what group that is, but there seems to be a sense there that, that, that there's a connection to blood. Now, the second, well, there's actually three things I'm mentioning. Um, I guess everybody's aware that there seem to be a group who, not seem to be, there are a group in Jerusalem who've been coming alongside somewhere, not at the Western Wall, and doing sacrifices, which is, uh, you know, is stirring up a lot of uh, <laughs> negative, uh, negative stuff. You're referring to a group known in English as the Temple Mount Faithful. Now, are they, okay, that's not the Temple Institute. That's something different. Yeah, exactly. These are the group who want to get that cornerstone in and so on and so forth. And so they really feel they've got to get in there and, and do. 
and, and the third thing is just a comment for, for Mati and sort of the, we're, we're living in a time where, gosh, people are vegans. They don't even want to kill animals to eat. How are we going to get to that point where, where, where you can start doing this again? Uh, I was in Israel and we went to a replica. It's in, I think it's in Ariel. It was a replica of the tabernacle or, or, or somewhere. And, and as with a, a Jewish friend came along on this trip and she's, you know, she's, she's not an observant Jew and she's going, Oh my goodness. She was just, I'll say she was, well, somewhat repulsed by seeing what the tabernacle was and all the washing and where the sacrifices were. And so I'm thinking of sort of contemporary Jews. Are we going to have to get to the point before this third temple that they've all recognized Messiah and so, um, you know, Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai, and so they will understand what this whole system has been, and they can participate in it without feeling, you know, those those poor bulls and lambs and doves, and you know, who's going to wash the blood away? And I mean, it's it 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 makes your mind go a little funny when you think of it all coming back. We're in a, we're in a twenty first century where. Sacrifice is now seen as very pagan. It certainly shocks the uh, the vegans, the vegans, vegetarians, <laughs> <laughs> but but not just vegans. You know, people who who don't like the idea of right. Look, th- th- this is this is this is true. Milk milk doesn't come from a cow; it comes from a square box that I buy in the corner store from from Eliyahu. I'm amazed where he finds it. Um, it, it, is, it, is, it. It is true. We have become quite removed from our um, food source. Yet we all know through human history that all of human history is go out, get a stick and club an animal and eat it. And the sacrifices are only one way of killing animals. You know, the majority of animals killed in the world have nothing to do with a divine being. They have everything to do with a really nice steakhouse. Um, that's 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 what they've got to do with. Um, uh, we, we we remember context is is king in terms of trying to understand. It, it is true in the in the modern period when you talk when you talk about the temple, you will always come up against the vegetarian sort of a, oh my gosh, I don't like this idea at all. Um, and then we will reinterpret the Bible based upon our you know dietary preference. You know, this particular friend had, you know, she's she's confused still with Eastern stuff and all that, but I think. That the fact that she, that you would have to use blood to get close to God, is something that she can't. She just can't get her mind around at all. Rather, she's not. A, she's not a vegan. But yeah, the vegans will probably rise up in in great hordes. But there were no vegans at the time of the temple, so no worries. What was it? <laughs> I said there were no vegans at the time of the temple. Right. <laughs> so yeah, the ceremony which you ask Janet called the kaparot, and everybody does it. Every single Jewish person does it before the Yom Kippur. It's not a part of a people who does it, but everybody does it. It's not from the Bible. It's from a rabbi called Rabbi Shashan Gaon, blah, blah. Uh, it's a Talmudic rabbi. You might this uh, very interesting. Uh, in Aramaic, a rooster is known as a gever. And in Hebrew, a gever is a man. So the Talmud says, thus we take a gever to atone for a gever. Hmm. We take a man to atone for a man. It, it's interesting because some Hasidim 
Haredic communities don't agree with that because Rambam was purely against Christ and you know anti-Christ and anti-church, and he said that a man cannot be atoned for a man. So there's a difference between this Talmudic rabbi and the Rambam, but that's what the Hasidic world believes. So yeah, and the other group which performs the ceremonies outside of the temple is completely crazy people. May God Almighty open their eyes. I don't know why they do that. Whenever the police uh, sees them, they seize them. So <laughs> crazy people. They, yeah. You know, um, they say when you have um, two Jews, you have um, three opinions. So yeah. you always, <laughs> so everybody has this own opinion. <laughs> yeah. I was uh, struck by the, the Yom Kippurat, I think I call it in, in Hebrew here. Is that right? Um, the, the, Yom Kippurot, they, they swing the chickens over themselves. Yeah, you can go to uh, various parts of Jerusalem and they'll have a little table um, where you actually, you actually don't do the swinging of the chicken yourself. You actually give like 200 shekels and, and, and they buy, they buy the, the, the chicken for you and the guy does it in front of you. Well, I tell you something more interesting than that, Reverend. Due to the pandemic, nobody did it. And instead of that, you wrote your name and your father's name, blah, blah, and put it in an envelope with 200 shekels and send it to Khafar Chabad, and they did it for you. Oh, <laughs> Hopefully they did. I don't know. I said 200 oh, shekels. Man. For you to know, in, um, in some um, African tradition worship, um, pagan worship, they do exactly just that. Um, they take the chicken, and um, when somebody's going through some kind of big problem and they run the chicken around the person and the chicken kind of carry the person's um, big problem and you know you know it's kind of a kind of um, spooky sacrifice that they do so when I when we see that it's um, of course we know this that they do it back here at home and so it kind of ignites some kind of connection why are they using the chicken and things like that um, it doesn't look too good from um, an African perspective <laughs> <laughs> Andrew has a good point. Sacrifice is a means to an end, not an end in itself. This is true. The people have an intention when they offer a sacrifice. That intention might be pure, might be honorable, could also be um, clandestine. It could be an appeasement, that is bribery. I will offer a sacrifice to Poseidon so I will get a safe voyage and make lots of money. But it could also be someone brings their sacrifice, which could be a cake, remember, and they could come before the Lord and, and offer that cake to the Lord. They're not going to get it back. It's going to be an offering. And, uh, and, and, and their heartfelt intention was this is an act of my worship and love, and so therefore... Um, it's it's uh, it has a mean it has a meaning and it had a meaning for the people of Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness. It had a meaning for what they heard when when Moses said it has a meaning for people a re a re meaning when you're in diaspora. It has a new meaning when you've built the second temple, and it has an absolutely brand new meaning when the Messiah gets up and says, "This is the blood my my blood of the new covenant," and you're like, "Whoa, what are you doing with that?" And you go, okay, I'm thinking I'm going a bit higher than all the stuff you've done before. And we have to keep putting it all into, into its context and its, and its, uh, and its meaning. And, um, and I think you then um, end up with uh, 
or what I hope would be a deeper understanding of what uh, the Messiah is doing as the blood of the Lamb. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristchurchJerusalem.org. Blessings from the City of the Great King.